The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So uh, if you'd grab your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to dig right into the Word tonight and then just have some time of worship and communion at the end. Nine. Nueve. What's nine in French? Nope. Nin? That sounds German. Nif? Nin? I don't know. Nine. One less than ten, one more than eight. Chapter nine is where we're going to be. And uh, let's just take a minute, if we can, to kind of back up and review where we are so far. Um, repetition is definitely the key to learning, and it's good for us to just remember, especially it's summertime, people are kind of in and out, you're traveling, napping during service, all those kind of things take place. I see it all. So um, just to, to review, we're talking about a true historical event that took place. Nehemiah was a Jewish man. This is during the time where um, Israel has been taken into, uh, really Israel doesn't exist as we know it. And God's people have been carried off into exile. And so right now in this particular time, Nehemiah, a Jewish man, is 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Very removed from God's land. Very, God's people scattered all over the place, some taken into captivity. But there's a small remnant that existed in the area around Jerusalem at this time. And Nehemiah, though he's 800 miles away, um, gets word that this remnant exists in Jerusalem and that they're struggling. They're struggling financially. They're struggling practically. Um, They are not protected. There's no wall around the city, which walls in that day mean everything. If your city didn't have a wall, you're in big trouble. If you go um, tour anywhere in Europe and in some of those areas, you know, where all the history actually comes from, Europe and Asia and those areas, our stuff's like 20 years old. Their stuff's like 2000. So it's really different. If you go over there in any of those areas, all the cities you go into, they always have walls. Even in areas like London, you see the walls around the old castles and stuff like that. So walls were huge then and Israel's walls had been destroyed. Jerusalem's walls in particular, I should say, had been destroyed. And so Nehemiah gets word that his people are struggling, that they're vulnerable to attack, that the walls are in disarray, and he's moved. He's moved with great compassion for a people that he's far off from. And we talked about the reality that God's people are designed and intended to live with empathy, deep empathy and compassion towards others, especially our brothers and sisters that are in the household of faith. We are supposed to be moved. We're to mourn with those who mourn, and we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are supposed to have an actual and tangible connection with other people of the faith. And so when we see things like Christians being murdered by ISIS overseas, we're supposed to be moved by that, moved to action, I would hope. And when we see some of the different tragedies that go on, or when we hear of just brothers and sisters that are struggling, there was... um, yeah, I'll tell this. I don't care. So um, there was a, a, there's a pastor by the name of Tulian Chavidian. Anyone ever heard of him? A few of you guys, Tulian Chavidian, um, wrote a fantastic book called Grace Changes Everything. And uh, no, no, that's just someone else. His is uh, Jesus, plus, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, I think is Tulian Chavidian's book. 
um, really, really good pastor, and he had been for a long time just preaching um, these messages about the simplicity of grace, and over and over and over, in fact, got into these big um, theological debates with some of the men from the Gospel Coalition that they're pushing law too much, and it needs to be grace, 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 all these kind of things. Um, Well, his family just recently went through a horrific situation. Um, His wife had an affair, and so they had to walk through all of that, and then she walked away from even the church discipline and the restoration they were trying to work on, and during that, then he fell into an inappropriate relationship with someone else. It was just this massive train wreck and a really sad situation. Huge church. It's it's James Kennedy's old church, if you remember who James Kennedy is, down in the Fort Lauderdale area in... um, Florida. Don't start a church in Fort Lauderdale, people. If, if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. But um, so, so this is all going down. And, and there's another pastor who, who I've had great respect for through the past, though he is known to be um, brash in a way that just annoys me a lot of times, named James McDonald. And um, James McDonald goes on Twitter and he says, beware anyone who preaches grace, 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 or whose life is grace, 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 crash. And um, that instantly blew up in his face for really, really good reason. That's a horrible thing to say when that's going on at that time. And it was clear that's who he was talking about because he was one of the guys that had been in this whole grace debate. So he's literally talking about, watch out for a guy who just preaches grace and then crashes. It just proves that he was a mess or whatever the case may be. It was a horrible thing to say. So the next day, one of the guys who's an Acts 29 pastor named Ray Ortland from Nashville, Tennessee, in response to that, goes on Twitter. I get all my news from Twitter these days, by the way, just in case you are wondering. But he goes on Twitter, and then he writes this. He said, when a, when a pastor falls, he's still my brother, and that's what makes it all the sweeter and the sadder to try to come alongside him, something to that effect. And that's the reality of it. Like, when we see someone fall, we should be moved to empathy, moved to compassion, want to extend grace, grieve with them when they're grieving, want to see people restored, rejoice when they have successes. We should move in that way with them. This is what God's people are designed to do. And Nehemiah, though he's 800 miles away, and by the way, in a cush job, he's the cupbearer to the king, he literally eats fancy food and drinks wine for a living. That's what he does, lives in the palace, the king's cupbearer. But instead, when he sees this going on, he is moved with compassion when he knows that his brothers are struggling. And so he's willing to lay all those things aside to go and interject and try to meet the needs that are there. In that, in that case, it's a very great picture of Christ, who in Philippians it says, did not see equality with God, though he was God, did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he laid that aside, he humbled himself because he saw our need. And he was moved with compassion for our sake, for our situation. And so this is what God's people are intended to do. And and when you look at the scriptures, especially the New Testament with regards to the church, but throughout all of them really, even in the law, it happens over and over. We are called to one another a ton in the Bible. There are a million one another's in the Bible. Um, This... um, kind of independent Lone Ranger Christianity that a lot of Western culture has created where we kind of go to church and we're in a church with one another, but we're not really part of anything and our faith's our own independent thing. That has nothing to do with Scripture. I mean, in Scripture, you are called to minister to one another, to forgive one another, to confess your sins to one another, to walk with one another, to celebrate with one another, to worship. With, I mean, there are a million. You ever want to take a season and do some real intensive Bible study? Study the one another's of Scripture. There's a million of them. 
And so we are called to community. We're going to get to a little more of that in just a little while. So, so Nehemiah goes to the king, and we see in chapter 2 his request to King Artaxerxes to want to go and help his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, and we talked about the fact that Nehemiah was a great man of prayer. And Nehemiah was a guy who would set aside time in the morning specifically to pray. Another picture of Christ who would do the same thing. The scriptures tell us he would rise early in the morning and get away to spend time in prayer with his father. But not just that, though, Nehemiah would pray. He would have that time set aside during the the morning, but then he was in constant communication and communion and prayer with God as the day went on. He was very much a man of prayer. We moved into chapter 3 and saw that big list of all the gates and the workers and who was working on what. What we saw in that is that real people do real work, that people from all different backgrounds and all different cultures and all different callings have a place in God's kingdom. And we also saw, frankly, that it's not just prayer, but that prayer should move to some sort of action. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is about seeking God's will and then going and doing God's will. And we saw this with Nehemiah. But then we spent a couple of weeks looking from different angles at the reality that when you go do what God has you to do, if you decide, man, I want to be moved with empathy towards people, lost people, Christian people. I want to be moved. I want to seek the Lord. What's my role in this kingdom in rebuilding the lost? And what's my role in inaugurating God's kingdom even today? I'm going to pray. I want to seek the Lord. And then God gives you, this is what I have for you to do, Jeff. This is what I have for you to do, Aaron. This is what I have for you to do, Sam. Then this is what we do. Once we step out, don't expect that, okay, I, I found God's path and now I'm just going to go do this and everything's going to be silky smooth and we'll just do this. Like opposition is guaranteed when you're doing kingdom work because the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of man here in earth today. So you're going to get opposition. And so we saw a text where there was great opposition from the outside and it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself said what? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We know that passage, but think about that verse for just a second. If they persecuted me, who came into towns, healed the sick, cast out demons, rose dead men right before people's eyes. If I did all that, fed the 5,000, all those things, and people saw it and they still persecuted me, Jeff, you are in so much trouble. That's just the reality of it. There is going to be opposition when we step out. And we've got to be careful because I've seen, I've done this myself. Take that passage out of, for example, Revelations, that he will open doors that no man can close and he will close doors that no man can open. You guys heard that before? Well, that can be translated and taken out of context to say that, hey, if you face resistance, that means the door is shut. That's not what God had for you. You've got to go the easy way because God will just open doors if you're doing the things that God's called you to do. And that does not mesh with pretty much the rest of the whole Bible. So um, we need to understand, opposition is going to happen. And a lot of times, the fact that you have opposition is a lot of times a good indicator that you might be on the right path um, because the way is narrow and the way is tough. Amen. So this is what we saw, and then in verse 5, we saw another, uh, uh, or chapter 5, excuse me, we saw another angle, that not only does opposition come from the outside, but many times opposition comes from the inside. And what we discovered and what we talked about is it's not always pretty in church. It's just not. Um, 
we've talked about this with marriage before years ago, or maybe if you've been married within the last however many years, you're, you're, if you went through premarital counseling, a lot of times people say things like this. They'll say, man, marriage is tough because you're taking two people who are sinners, and now you're doubling them by putting them within the same household. You just doubled your sin intake in the same household, and we all chuckle and go, yeah, it's actually kind of true, right? Okay, so how much more like in here, we got about, I don't know, 50, 75 people in this room, so, or 25, I don't know, pastors always guess high, so whatever we have in here, like we've just done that, right? Like if your idea is that coming into the church means everything's going to be squeaky clean, if you believe that all Christians who desire to follow God are going to be nailing it 24-7, you are horribly naive and probably um, self-deceived as well. It's just not true. And we are going to make mistakes. I am going to make mistakes. Lots of mistakes. I have made lots of mistakes. I'm going to let some of you down. You're going to let me down. We're going to frustrate one another at times, but that's okay because those are the situations where we learn how to repent. We learn how to show grace with one another. Those are the things where God is smoothing off the rough edges as he builds his holy temple, the scriptures tell us in Peter. It's, it's not always pretty and clean in church. In fact, some of the more difficult opposition that we will face will come from within many, many times. And a lot of us have experienced that. We've talked about that. We'll keep going before we start pointing fingers, right? But this is the beauty of it, though. I think sometimes we believe that, that when we get saved, everything's going to change. And because we all have this Christian morality and we're following Jesus, that things are going to be really good and clean all the time. But what we find out is, is that we trip up and fall and scrape our knees a lot, do we not? And yet God is graciously still just urging us on. I mean, a lot of us are going to cross that finish line with a lot of bruises and a lot of skint up knees, and it's just going to make the path all the sweeter as we see God's grace. So just be encouraged by that and just understand. Opposition comes from the outside. Opposition comes from the inside. But no matter what, we are rebuilding and standing not on our feelings, not on our emotions, not on our experiences, but we are standing on the word of truth, God's word. So we saw Ezra who comes in and they begin to speak the words of God as, as uh, Pastor uh, Brent took you guys through this, that we are rebuilding, we are approaching the mission of God from the basis of the word of God. And so this is with reality, for example, with regards to, I, I mentioned it on, on Sunday before service, if you came in late, you missed me yell at some people, and maybe it's you, I apologize for that. My wife said, you sounded kind of harsh, sorry. But um, the issue of gay marriage, okay, so... Um, um, how do I say this right? When, when I brought that up on Sunday and there were some people in the congregation, if you're here, I'm not pointing you out. I don't even know who it was, frankly. But if we had some people in the congregation, when I sp- started speaking about gay marriage, we put a picture up of the White House. Remember when they put the, the rainbowed colors on the house and all this kind of stuff? And there were some people in the congregation that began to just, boo, like that. So, so let me say, I understand Politically, I agree with you completely in all of those things. I do. But here's the issue. When you do things like that, it's really easy to create a culture where it begins to be perceived that it's us against them. And listen, we are not against gay people. We're not. If, if you are, you're wrong. We're for gay people, but we are for them as we stand on God's word. The reason we don't want to see men marry men is because we know from God's word that when you're not following God's plan for your life, you're setting yourself up for misery and you're falling into deception where Satan could lead you maybe away from any hope of ever finding God in the first place. And so because we understand the realities of that, we will oppose 
excuse me, things like gay marriage, but not because we're opposing gay people. It's because we are for them. So there are times when we will fight situations, fight um, um, against different issues or causes, things like that that may happen, but it doesn't mean that we're against the person. We are for their joy, but we are fighting from the truth of God's word, and we can not budge from God's word. Does that make sense? So, so I, I don't want to create a culture where when things like that come up, we go, boo. I'd rather create a culture in our church where when things like that happens, we weep. Because we understand people are broken and this thing that's going on that they think our country just got so much better is leading them further away from Jesus and into greater and greater and greater uh, danger, frankly. And so we want to mourn that. And, and we don't want to chew people out and say, you're ruining America, but we want to plead with them to come to Jesus. Does that make sense? So, so we fight situations, we fight causes. We're not fighting people. We're fighting for people from God's word. And this is what we do. This is how God rebuilds people from the reality of his word. And I think this is really important, especially as we begin to move forward, because the culture is absolutely changing. There's no doubt about it. The culture is changing big time out there. And so we have to stand firm, more and more firm on God's word, but we need to show God's love in his heart, because it is his kindness that leads to repentance. And so when these people go out there and, and, and all their hopes and dreams have been put into, if I could just get married like everyone else, if I could just have a spouse, that's what I need to be happy. They're going to discover the same thing all of us non-homosexual people have discovered. Your spouse is not your savior and it is not your ticket to happiness. Amen? It's not. It's not. But, but we have the opportunity through love and through a generous heart to show them, but there is a better way. That's what we desire to do. Does that make sense? Um, I probably explained that a little better today than I did Sunday instead when I just said no. But anyway, um, so we'll move on. So we're rebuilding on the word of truth. We are fighting for them. And so now we come to Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, Ezra's been reading the law. The Feast of Booths has been separated. The Holy Day set apart. And so now the people of Israel are going to come together and they're going to confess their sin. And they're going to read this testimony of the scriptures. And, and so we're going to take massive chunks is what we're going to do. We're not going to go through and um, exegete every single verse. Um, though I, I would love to, I should say, because this is big picture stuff. When it goes into starting back from Abraham and he goes and walks through, um, you guys remember a couple of years ago, biblical theology, stepping back and looking at the scriptures from a big picture kind of standpoint, that's the kind of stuff. I love biblical theology more than anything else that I get to teach. It is my favorite thing in the world. And so I would love to go, there's so many things, I was like, ah, but we're not chasing rabbit trails. We're going to look at this exactly the way I believe that God would have us to do it. So let's start out in verse 1 and read through verses 6. It says this, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Don't ever tell me I go long. I've never done that. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites, pray for me as I read this, guys, stood Jeshua, Bani, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, that's easy, Sherebiah, Bani, he's there twice, um, Shin, Shin, Shinai, I, 
I can never pronounce these things. It's a good thing I'm not Hebrew. And they cried with a loud voice to their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabenani, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethath, said, stand up, and you guys might know this song, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6, we're going to focus on, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Okay, now we're about to embark on basically a history of Israel to this point. And he starts off here in verse 6 by saying, you are the Lord, you what? Nobody. You what? Alone. Alone. One of the trademarks, one of the things that set the people of Israel apart from most every other culture on the face of the earth at this time was that the Christians or Jews at this time and Christians, us today, we are not polytheists. There is one God. One God. There is not a, um, a pyramid of gods where our God's on top, but then there's these other gods. There's none of that stuff. There is one God, and he reigns over every single thing on earth. Now, this is in cultures where there's the rain God, and there's the moon God, and there's the you know, golf God, or whatever the case may be. There's like gods of everything, right? The God of biscuits, the God of gravy, the God of all of these. There's just gods for everything, Right? But we worship, and the Jews worship, who? One God. You are God alone. And so he sets this out, that we're not polytheists. And then he starts from there, and take a look, if you will, at verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Okay, now think about this a second. There's one God we worship, only one. You're the God who called Abraham out, and you said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, the land of the Canaanite, the land of the Jebusites, and all the ites. And then he says, what? You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. What's going on in Israel right now? Does it look like God kept his promise? If you were the average Jewish person there in that day and age, would you feel like God had kept his promise? You're not in control. Your people are scattered all over the place. Your nation's a mess. You just got the walls up. You're still not even a nation again yet. You're still under oppression. You're still having to get permission from foreign lands. You're a wreck. And then they stand here collectively. They repent of their sins before God, which we're going to get to that in a few minutes. And they say, you have kept your promise. You are righteous. It's an amazing thing to say. What is it that they can hold on to that would allow them to be able to say that? What is it that these people have experienced and what is it that they're thinking of and clinging to that allows them to look at God and say, you're faithful. You've kept your promise. You've never let us down. You're faithful. Even though it would be really easy for them to say, um, God, you said all this land would be ours and um, come on, man, please. We got walls now. 
Can we drive everyone out and have our land back? And, and let's remember, Israel's going to experience this kind of oppression and foreign oversight for a long, long time into, Je- into Jesus' day. Frankly, they're still dealing with it today. Even in the land Israel has today that is their sovereign land, they still can't hardly build an apartment without the UN going nuts, right? So, so how can they look at this stuff and go, you have been faithful and you kept your promise? Because it doesn't look like it. So they go into this history. Now we're going to read a long section right here. We're going to read from verse 9 to verse 31. Don't go to sleep. Stay in there. Look at it. And I want you to look for patterns. I want you to look for phrases that might be repeated. Cycles of behavior that might be repeated. And then we're going to analyze some stuff on the back end of that, okay? Beginning in verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty water. By a pillar of cloud you led them by day. By a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now listen up. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst." Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshman, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess." So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them, excuse me, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them their land with their kings and peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and became fat. And delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. 
and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But again, after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of the enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And he turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands." Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. Now, let's think about this passage. That's as far as we're going to get today, just letting you know. You're going to be on your own to read the rest of the chapter. So they go into this history. Remember, they are still in exile. They're still not in control of their own people. They are not a nation yet. And then they go, they confess their sins before God, and they're like, you are the God of Abraham who you promised Abraham you were going to give this land to him and you were going to eradicate his enemies. And then they say, you have been faithful. You have kept your promise, even though it doesn't look like that at all to the average outsider looking at the situation. So how is it that they are able to look back through their history and at their own experience in spite of the situation they're in in that exact moment and be able to claim God still keeps his promises and God is faithful? This is an important thing for us to be able to do and for us to be able to walk other people through because people are going to go through things. People go through stuff. There's people in this room right now that are going through all sorts of things, and we all know someone who's going through a desert season or a tragedy or a pain or cancer or whatever the case may be, death. And so to be able to come alongside someone and point them to the faithfulness of God, even when their current situation looks like God has vanished, is an important and necessary thing for us to do if we want to be able to go out there and build disciples, correct? Correct. So, so what are some things? I'm going to just give you four things, four promises concerning God's, God's faithfulness that the people of Israel are holding on to that they can look back and see, and they're things that we can look back and see in our own lives as well. Okay, four things, and then we'll be done. Number one is this. They can see that God does not abandon his people and is always aware of their circumstances. That's one thing. God does not abandon his people. He is always always aware of their circumstances. Good thing to know for them right now, right? For them to know that even when it feels like you are alone, even when it feels like you are in a tragic mess, even when it feels like God has completely turned his back on you and is letting you go through this mess on your own, no matter how alone you feel, God has never, not once, abandoned you. And he is absolutely aware of what you're going through and what's going on. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23, what is it he says? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. We still quote King James in that one, don't we? But it's true. 
This is the reality. No matter what it is I'm going through, I can realize that I can still go through this thing. I can preach this gospel to myself that says, well, I mean, Jesus himself, who cries out on the cross, says, I will never leave you nor forsake, or excuse me, who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever situation we're in, no matter how absent God seems or how devastating the situation seems, God has never ever abandons his people and he is always aware of what you're going through. So that's number one. Number two is this. God guides and instructs his people faithfully. Um, Many of us at different times in our life have been in one of those I don't know what to do situations, right? I don't know what to do about this job. I don't know what to do about this house, about this relationship. I don't know what to do going to school here. I, I don't know what to do in this, but here's the reality. God has never abandoned us to simply do what we think. He's never left that on us. He has never said, I hope you figure it out, Jeff. One of them choices ain't going well. Good luck. (laughs) God has never done that. Now, there's many times we do not take advantage of God's instruction, and we do that to ourselves. Amen? Experience can be quite the teacher, but that's, that is not true. Even in this very text alone, what we see are three major things that God has given us to help guide us through situations like this. Number one, God has given us his spirit. He has given his Holy Spirit to us, the comforter and the helper to guide us into his will. He's given us his, that's a huge thing alone right there. That would be enough alone right there. The reality that God has given us his spirit. But God has given us his law. Now, we just came out of Galatians, and we kind of hammered the law in a lot of ways in Galatians. But, but remember, the law is beautiful and perfect. Read Psalm 119 sometime. The law is a good thing. Salvation by law, bad thing, if you think you're pulling that off. That's legalism. That's different from the law in general. Law is good. I mean, we should be happy we have law, Right? I mean, we live in a culture where if something happens at our home, we can pick up a phone and within two to 15 minutes, depending on where you live, if you're in Grants Pass, it'll take a day, but at some point, someone's coming to help you deal with the situation that you're going through, correct? I mean, we live in a culture where the government says it is not okay for people to come to your home and take things. We don't have to have walls around everything that we own like people did in that day because we live in a culture where law has been given to help us. Law is a good thing, to guide us. Well, God's law is full of wisdom to protect us from difficulty, to protect us from bad decisions, to protect us from going off on our own way, and to help us continue to follow God. Remember, for the unbeliever, the law points out how far you've fallen from the grace of God. But for the believer, the law is wooing you into greater joy. The law is saying there is better joy, there is a better life, there is more peace if you live like this because this is how God has designed you to live. And so the law is a good thing. That's why we still teach Old Testament here. Otherwise, if it was a bad thing, we just stay in the New Testament all the time. But it's not the case. The law is a good thing. And so God gives us great wisdom and guidance through his law. And then the third thing that we see in this text is just community, fellowship with one another. Christian community is a massive gift. We talked on this already in the intro, but we were never as believers and as the church designed to come to service. That was never the intent. 
We, we don't come to a show or a service like we would go to a movie or any of those kind of things. Um, I spent some time yesterday over at Edgewater with a, a group of guys, some community leaders, some pastors. Bucky Buckstabber came down from Jesus Church up in Portland, and, and he um, was doing this workshop that I kind of hel- ended up helping him with anyway about um, community groups and missional communities and all these kinds of things. And he was telling a story how, you know, everybody, every family has one of those things that you do all the time that make your kids roll your eyes. His is, if his kids ever say, Dad, are we going to church? He goes, we don't go to church. We are the church. And they go, are we going to a church gathering? Yes, son, we are. And that's become this thing. He never allows his kids in his home to ever say, are we going to church? Because he doesn't want to use language that, that undoes the reality that we are the church. Now, on Sunday, we gather together as the church in a gathering, which is really important, but we don't go to service. The idea is that the church community exists to learn from one another, to worship together. There's something about our gathering that is a picture of heaven as we all come together and sing his praises. That, you know, we're commanded to have gatherings, but if you look at the scriptures, that's where this whole one another stuff comes in. You were never intended to be a Lone Ranger Christian. Do you know in the New Testament there are zero commandments or mandates given to the believer to be done independently? Every single mandate in the New Testament is written and intended to be done within community. All of it. Every word. There's no letter written to one guy. It's all written to the church. And so if we separate ourselves from that, if we're the person, and in our church, especially on Sundays, it's so easy to come in on Sunday, sit, take in the service, leave. You can go for years to this church and never be known Never know anyone, and you are robbing yourself. You are ripping from yourself one of God's greatest gifts and tools of sanctification. Or or if you are one who doesn't allow people to know you, so, so you don't have anyone that you're ever confessing to, you don't have anyone that you're repenting to, you don't have anyone that you can sit down and talk about things going on, you don't have anyone that you've opened yourself up to so that they can actually speak into your life when they see things that might be out of step with what should be going on. If you have none of those things, then you have robbed yourself from one of the greatest tools God has given us in the church to be able to follow God and to be able to get through situations. Church community and fellowship with one another is a huge, huge gift. And it's one of the primary ways by which God leads his people. So that's all point two. God guides and instructs his people faithfully. Part one, he never abandons. He's always aware of our circumstances. Number two, he constantly guides and instructs his people through every situation. Number three, God always provides for his people. God always always provides for his people. He gives them water. He gives them food. He gives them protection. He's a cloud by day. He's fire by night to light their way. He does whatever is needed. He is constantly uh, um, providing for their need. The part we have to constantly remind ourselves of is it's according to his understanding and wisdom of what our need is, not what we think our need is. And that's where the rub comes, right? I need this, I need this. And God's like, no, you need this. That's the reality of it. And, and God is not a genie in a bottle. He's just not. He doesn't exist to make our wishes and dreams come true. We exist to bring his will into fruition here. But God always provides for his people. 
He will withhold no good thing from those who love him, the scriptures say. And so if there's something that we think we need or that we want and we don't have at this moment, it's not in God's wisdom, which is way higher than our scripture makes that really clear. It is not good for us. It is not what we want at that time. But we will look at things so many times and we think that we deserve them. We do. We'll think, you know, um, if we're acting morally, if we're just nailing it for a reason, sometimes during a season like that, we'll start to feel like God owes us something. And so there can be this tendency like, why is God withholding this from me? Why is God withholding a husband from me? Why is God withholding a wife from me? Why is God withholding this job from me? And we feel like we deserve it. But the reality is, is we need to constantly readjust our thinking to understand that we do not want what we deserve. We want grace. And that's just the reality of it. Don't tell God, I want this because I deserve it. Don't do that. Trust me. We want grace and mercy on every situation that we have. That's what our prayer is. Lord, I don't have this relationship and I'm desperate for it. Don't say, and I deserve it. Man, oh, say, I need mercy. How many husbands or wives in here realize that God blessed you with someone that is infinitely better than what you actually deserved in your marriage? Two people. Awesome. And they're married to each other. So, <laughs> so I don't know how that works. I think you just canceled each other out in that. But, but that's just the reality for so many people. For so many people. And this is just the reality of it. Um, I'm going to skip all the rest of that. So God always gives to his people. God always provides for his people. Let's go to number four, the last one. And this is maybe the one that you might see the most. There's a continual pattern that happens over and over in this text. God reveals himself. God blesses them. He calls them to him. There's rejoicing. And then what does it say? But they were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. They pushed away from God. They rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They threw his law behind their back. They ignored all of these things, and they went on their own way. But what do we see in the scriptures over and over and over? That God is ready to forgive. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is steadfast. He is quick and mercy. He never forsook them. I mean, speaking of things you don't deserve, because over and over and over and over, they blow it again and they blow it again and they blow it again. I mean, think about this. God miraculously, did, this never ceases to amaze me. God miraculously delivers them from Egypt through miracles that cannot be argued. Miracles that were intended to show that God is the true and living God and that all these others are fakes. And that was the whole point. And so he does this, he delivers them. They walked through the world's first aquarium. I mean, they did all of this stuff, right? And then what happens? They get frustrated. Oh, he's been up there. He's abandoned us. He's been gone for too long at Sinai. Everybody bring your gold. They build a cow and say, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. Are you kidding me? Is that not the dumbest, seemingly dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life? But God is faithful to forgive. And the reason this is good news for us is because we do the same thing. We can experience God's grace, God moving in our lives, doing things for us, pouring his grace on us, and then we have this tendency to say, oh, it was me all along. It was my efforts. Man, this is going well in my life because I've been doing this and this and this and this and this. And the reality is, is that every good thing comes down from our Father in lights. The scriptures make it really clear. We didn't do nothing. 
God has graced us and he has poured his mercy. And if there's anything good going on in your life, then it is the grace of God that has done that for you. But so quickly we become these glory hordes. And so we take this away from him and we rebel and we say, well, go do this our way and I'm going to do this and I know better than God. I know what I need more than God. I know all of these sorts of things. And this is the history of the people of Israel. I mean, he even brings them into the land after they've been that rebellious, stiff-necked people. He gives them a place where there's like wine flowing down the hills and food for days, and they get fat, literally. And so what does God say? All right, chubby, you're on your own. Yeah, I'm out of here. No. He starts sending prophets to them, pleading with them, come back, come back, come back, come back. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. And then what do they do? They kill the prophets. And what's he still doing? Come back, come back, come back. He is insanely merciful. He is incredibly gracious to the point that then he sends his own son and we kill him too. And what does he say? You know what? That was the plan all along, to save you. God is so incredibly gracious. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I want to do is just take a few minutes. Sam's going to come up here. He's going to play three songs. You got three songs. So don't blow the time on this one, right? But you get three songs. So I don't know your situation. We come from all sorts of situations, all sorts of seasons, If this is a good season for you, if you're just enjoying the blessings of God, maybe this is a time to be careful and remind yourself that it is God's mercy in your life to come to the communion table and be reminded that everything good that has ever happened to your life has been a gift from God and to understand that because God is aware of every situation and uses them to grow us, every bad situation we ever went through in our life is also a grace from God because he uses them to mold us. I mean, think about it this way. When you go through hardship, isn't that the time that you, I don't know how to say this right, it's not in my notes, um, aren't those the season in which we get God? I mean, does that make sense? Like when things are going well, we can be like, man, God's blessing me, I got a house and I got a job and I got all these things. But when we go through hardship and we feel alone and we have to wrestle through things, that's when our relationship with God can grow the most. That's when we feel like we got God. Does that make sense? What's more valuable than that? And so to even understand that the valleys we go through have gone through the hand of God before they got to us, we can understand that God withholds no good thing from those who fear him, from those who love him, that even our difficulties are mercies and gifts from God intended to bring us into a closer, closer relationship with him. I mean, God is so good. You guys realize this? He's so good. And, and we shouldn't even have time, speaking of things like the gay marriage and all that kind of, we shouldn't even have time to point fingers of condemnation and shout and do all the stuff that some of these churches are doing because we should be way too busy telling them you don't understand, he's good, he's merciful, he loves you, he died for you, he poured his blood out for you, he forgives you, he's calling you back, he's calling you back, he's calling you back. This is the ministry of reconciliation that the word tells us we've been given. And so if you're in that good season, man, this is a, a time to just go, man, God has just been really good to me. And to use this as an opportunity to give, make sure you're not hoarding any of God's glory and deflect it all to him. If you're in a difficult situation, then this is an opportunity to come before God and say, Lord, I'm choosing again to trust you. I want to look back and remember I'm not alone in this. 
that you're guiding me, that you're instructing me. Maybe I've even ignored some of that guidance and instruction. I've been doing things on my own, but but Lord, I want to come back to you in this, that you provide for me. I, I feel alone, I feel empty, but you are providing for me, Lord. And to understand that God is ready to forgive because for some of us, maybe it's a season of sin. Maybe we, maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't even want to confess it because we love sin sometimes. But to realize that God is just and merciful. That as you go over here and you hold the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was poured out for you and for that sin that you're dealing with or that sin that has ensnared you, this is an opportunity for you with joy to go to the communion table and say, I confess this sin to the God who is able, just, and faithful to forgive. Whatever you're doing, you have not overextended God's invitation for grace. So we're just going to take some opportunity here tonight to enjoy that. Sam's going to lead us in three songs, and then he'll have a stand somewhere in the last one there, Sam. We didn't really coordinate this very well. And, uh, and he'll close the service for us tonight. So if you will, just take advantage of this time. Just hop up, grab whatever you need. If you want to huddle with your family, if you want to kind of get away on your own, we're just going to allow the Spirit to minister in this room for your heart to worship God or for you to plead with God for guidance and for protection through the things you're going through. Let's just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our souls during this time. Amen. Amen. God, we commit this time to you. Lord, we ask that you would just do some work on our hearts and souls. We ask that you'd be honored by our worship and that we would again return our gaze to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy in Jesus' name.